want your souls. And I want them both right now. I don't want any more trouble. Well, you got trouble! And it starts with you. I'm not gonna fight you, Ringo. There's no money in it. Sober up. Come on, boys. Wretched slugs. Don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? I'm your huckleberry. That's just my game. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fun. And it's time for Kill Me Cast. Yeah, it's time for Kill Me Cast. Welcome to Kill Me Cast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals out there listening to a new episode of Kilmer Cast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly bewitching American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Kilmer's role as Doc Holliday in the 1993 Western Tombstone. Joining us to talk about the film and Kilmer's role in it is the assistant editor of Jump Cut Online, a Rotten Tomatoes film, film critic, and you've read her writing on Crooked Marquee, Nerdist, and many other sites. Please welcome Audrey Fox. How are you doing today, Audrey? Thanks for having me. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we're, it's now the new year, so uh, you know. hopefully we are refreshed and we will be able to have a new and uh, nice life versus what happened in 2020. <laughs> oh man, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. So what's been keeping you busy as we stare down another lockdown? Um... Yeah, I've been doing a lot of uh, end of year kind of coverage, ramping up into award season, um, still doing my full-time job from home, um, mm. and st a lot of staring at walls, just kind of <laughs> contemplating my existence. <laughs> it's, it's a really good time to get, uh, you know, esoteric and, and just think about what life is, you know, when you're stuck with yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I know you're a member of the Online Association of Female Film Critics, and so uh, end of the year awards are obviously a big deal for every guild. What has come up for you this year in 2020 that really stood out to you for the end of the year awards? Mm, it's it's such a weird year because I feel like I've seen so many things, um, but <laughs> it's hard for me to keep track of like when they're coming out, are they part of everything? But I mm. feel like I loved One Night in Miami. I saw that at a festival um, online a few months ago, and I thought that was great. Nine Days was really good, very um, existentialist, which I feel like was was fitting. So yeah. those are kind of the two ones that pop into my head. I saw your uh, end of the year list of things you had to catch up on, and mm -hmm. it, it to put it put it in a word is you know daunting. <laughs> I, I saw a lot of the titles were much of the same as me that I definitely have to finish up before end of the year voting happens. What of that list was you looking most forward to? Because for me, honestly, my the one I really needed to watch uh, was Promising Young Woman, and um, so I'm curious what for you is the one you really need to watch. Yeah, no, actually, that's my, that was my number one. I need to watch this by the end of the year movie. Um, I I've been anticipating it for a full year now, and it's crazy it was supposed to come out in March, right? Yeah, and I mean, I remember seeing that trailer with the Britney Spears violin, and and I was like, oh my god, I have to see this movie, and and I was like, wow, that was basically a year ago at this point that you know, like I have not seen this movie. Yeah, because it, it came out at Sundance, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And then it was supposed to be released in March. And, and then nothing. that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> so yeah, it's 
it's been a journey an odyssey of waiting for this movie yeah I, I think there's you know i'm afraid that there are movies that i've just completely missed that i expected to watch because they just either vanished or just were released on streaming and passed me by and so i'm i'm really concerned that i'm gonna get into the next year and be like oh yeah i never saw that movie and I, now right now i can't think of what they were because i've been getting the screeners in and i'm like no i remember that one but i know there's got to be stuff out there that i'm completely blanking on yeah, that's definitely something that I'm concerned about. And I also feel like when I do get screeners, it's a lot harder for me to watch them, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a one sitting mm-hmm. kind of like if I'm going to a movie theater, of course, I'm going to sit and watch it in one sitting and I can watch five or six movies in a day if I'm at a festival. Oh, yeah. But for some reason, you know, these screeners that have a 24 hour, 48 hour window, it's really hard for me to fit them in around like other stuff that's going on in my life. So. Yeah, trying to just find carve out a little, you know, two hour block or sometimes three hours with some of these films. It's very difficult at home because there's so many distractions. Yeah, and it always ends up being, you know, I'll try to put it on at, you know, midnight, and <laughs> like this is this is not going to be a good viewing experience because I'm just watching it because I have to. And, um, yeah, so I miss that. I miss being able to see movies because I, you know, want to go watch them in a theater and experience mm-hmm. that and. Yeah, I always feel like I'm not being fair to the films that I'm watching when I'm watching, especially an online screener, because I'm like, well, I'm watching it on this tiny screen, and my focus is definitely not on the movie itself. It's the whole, I'm just sitting in front of a small screen watching this thing. I want to watch it the way it's intended to be watched, and that's just unfair to that film itself, because I'm never going to have the same connection to it that I would have had in a theater. Yeah, and I think a lot of these movies that would have had huge festival buzz, because that's a thing, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's when you when all of the reviews that come out of a festival are always, you know, one to two stars higher than they would normally be because everybody's jazz and they just saw it and they had this experience. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that's happening as much with like online solo no. festival experiences yeah yeah i mean you can't get out of the screening and then say oh, just, you know what do you think of that and it's like no we all saw it at a different time there was no shared experience of it yeah and we all saw it at like to totally different times like you're saying like if you know maybe you saw i don't know this movie as part of this festival and someone else saw it as part of a different one it felt like during normal festival season, those festivals were all happening over the course of two to three weeks. So mm. all of the reactions were still kind of happening in the same space. And now it feels like they're like dissipated a little bit. And um, I'd agree. Sprung, yeah, diluted, I guess is the word. That's a good word for it. Absolutely. It's definitely, you don't feel the same connection to the film that you would have had otherwise. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about Tombstone. Um, so this may be a rare episode of KilmerCast where I say to you, is this your favorite Val Kilmer film? And you say, yes. So is this your favorite Val Kilmer film? Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, so it, it is. It's a rarity. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the films that we watch on this series, people are like, yeah, no, I would never have watched if I, this film if I, if I didn't have to watch it for the show. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, what is it that made you connect to this film? Well, I... Full disclosure, watched it for the first time about five hours ago. So it's a new experience (laughs) for me. It's a new, a movie that I hadn't seen before. I will say I'm not a huge, huge Western person, but I do like the Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, you know, story because that's Mm -hmm. something that I've seen in films a lot before. And so it's kind of like, I go into it knowing what to expect. And so I was already, you know, into it for that reason, but I was just surprised by how like the movie was kind of funny it had like really Mm. good moments and 
every time Val Kilmer was on screen, I was like, oh my God, this is, it, I don't, you're, you're acting in a slightly different movie than everyone else. Oh yeah. But I love that. <laughs> I love the accent. I love every affectation. I thought it was so good. That's awesome. I mean, uh, you said, you, you know, Western's not really your thing. And I have to agree, Western is not my thing. I don't, I wouldn't choose most of the time to watch a Western. But it's funny because we recently did Thunderheart, which is a, a, kind of a neo-Western because it's set in modern day, but it's, it's a wet, out West and it involves um, a lot of Western ideas. You know, but I'm wondering if the problem for me in Westerns is I haven't been exposed enough to them because we don't get a lot of Westerns anymore. And so maybe we're just not seeing good ones because for me, Personally, I saw a lot of Westerns as a kid on TV, like TV movies the weekend, and they were terrible. They're all these John Wayne, you know, stereotype, ridiculous cowboys and Indians kind of films. Maybe I'm just not seeing the good ones. And maybe that's the issue for Westerns that we need to build them up. Like we need a festival for Westerns that would help show the best, curate them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. I think Westerns as a genre, when they were popular they were getting churned out constantly. And mm. I know they're very cheap to film. You just, you know, get your, your cast down to Arizona and, you know, you film for like a couple weeks. You can reuse a lot of footage. They all use the same storylines, same, you know, beats. So I, like, they were pumping out so many of them. And yes, the quality is not consistent. There are some really, really good ones. Um, but for me, it's the storylines that tend to be shown in, Westerns, I get, I, you know, I understand the whole conflict between like masculinity and femininity and, you know, the wilderness and domesticity and all this stuff, but it's, it's not something that like tends to, to draw me in. Um, mm. Like the masculine battle of like the self versus <laughs> nature. I'm just like, okay, cool. But there are some really, really good ones. And the best of Westerns are like great films. It's just, mm. there's a lot of other stuff that's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, the genre doesn't have a lot of great representation, unfortunately. I think the best of the best are the ones that we separate from Westerns, actually. We say that the Unforgivens and the uh, True Grits, that we almost remove them. We elevate, actually, we probably have called them elevated Westerns because they're not, they don't feel like the John Wayne Western. Yeah, and that that is definitely true. Um, I also feel like over the past decade or so, there's been a movement um, with like Western horror Mm. which I feel like there have been some movies that have gotten good press because they're sort of like vaguely Western, but they're mm. more kind of rooted in the horror genre. So that's also interesting the way it's evolved over time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting way to approach a genre that kind of uh, has maybe reached its limits is to start mashing it up with other genres and you get some really interesting work out of that. I also, has there been a Western Marvel film yet? I don't think so. Um, I mean, because that's really something. What Marvel has done a really good job. I know it, it you know, has a, its detractors for dominating the box office with superhero films. But um, what I find interesting about Marvel at its peak is that it can take its characters and put them into a genre and make a genre film that's really good out of those characters. You know, taking Black Panther and making it a James Bond film, essentially, and, you know, and re reinvigorating that genre in a new way. I'd love to see what they could do with a Western. It doesn't have to be a Western character, but I think if you took a character and, and told a Western story with those characters, I think they could do a really good job at that and really push Westerns to a whole new level. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a good point. And I do love when Marvel gives its directors the freedom to kind of go into genres. Um, mm. I feel like what you're describing is, is kind of like a little bit Star Wars. Because mm, Star, Star Wars is a space Western. That's absolutely um, true. Even like, 
shot for shot some of the parallels between it, the early scenes in Star Wars and, and like the searchers. Yep. Um, that blew my mind, by the way, when I was in high school <laughs> watching the searchers, I was like, wait a minute, this is Star Wars. Yeah. Once you show somebody hidden fortress and you know, you start showing them the films that inspired George Lucas to make Star Wars and they go, Oh, it's, it's not, it's not this, you know, wholly built thing out of itself. It's taking from film history and, and making something different. And I love when you can open people's eyes to using Star Wars as like this, you know, Rosetta Stone into film. Uh, I love that, that, that idea that you can do that. And I think that we could do that with Westerns in the opposite direction and take Westerns and make other kinds of films out of them and really build up that genre. Because I have to say the Westerns I've watched for this series, I've enjoyed. And I, I think they're really enjoyable and fun because it's a whole different world than the one that I live in. And I love an escapism like that where I can go somewhere else through film that I can't experience myself. Yeah, that's that's really great. And I think like now more than ever, they are making Westerns that have more of a product, like production values. And you can tell they're not just being filmed on a back lot somewhere like they would have been in the 40s or 50s. Mm. So it's nice to see people like invest in, you know, telling prestige Westerns. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, I think the ideas behind Westerns are really cool. I'm very interested in um, the Western as a reaction to technology advancements and things mm -hmm. like that like people being scared and kind of wanting to you know like a kinder gentler time even though like the old west is horrifically violent <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know exactly what they wanted but absolutely i mean that's one of the things um you know working on writing with uh you know screenwriter friends of mine is the issue of technology often hurts a lot of plot points because it's so easy to solve a problem just by using technology and so if you take a story and you remove it to an area where an era that uh, doesn't have that technology like the Western, you can tell some really interesting stories because you can't solve those problems so easily. Yeah, you don't have to worry about like, well, why didn't they just call the person? Why yeah. didn't they just like, they all have cell phones. I'd love to see a teen comedy in a, in a Western setting. Like, <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen that. Like, you know, were there, you know, that's, now I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen teens in a Western. Like, it seems like there's no, there's children and there's adults, but there's never any teens in a Western. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the searchers is the only one I can think of um, because it's got like Natalie Wood as mm -hmm. a teenager who gets like kidnapped. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's like dark, but yeah. That would actually be hilarious to see just like teens out in the West. Be great. The Empire Records of the Old West. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Working at the, like the, the one store. The general, in the store, general yep. store. Yeah. <laughs> so before we dive into getting the tombstone, although we've kind of done that already, we need to go back in time a bit. Gather round as we put Kilmer in context. So Tombstone made its debut uh, in theaters on Christmas, uh, December 25th, 1993. So obviously you do not have to tell me your exact age, but you were alive in 1993, right? Correct. I was, I was about, well, I was almost six then if it was December. So I was probably not watching Tombstone, but definitely alive <laughs> for it at the time. Okay. Well, I was 16 at the time, so I have a pretty good memory of the, what was happening around there. So uh, I'll be introducing ideas to you that you probably don't remember. But, um, you know, I, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a return home. Uh, around that time, uh, we'll start with a fun one. A gunman killed six people and wounded 19 others on the Long Island Railroad train. 
which I absolutely remember because uh, I was a frequent rider of that train throughout uh, college and afterwards. And so that was a really dark time, obviously. Uh, I was kidding when I said light. <laughs> but, um, you know, it definitely was something that struck Long Island people a lot because it was just crazy moment of some uh, lunatic. And then the whole trial was insane because he ended up representing himself in the trial. And he actually questioned his own victims in the trial, which is so ridiculously bad that they allowed that to happen. Uh, also at the time, uh, Shannon Doherty was fired from Beverly Hills 90210. Did you, do you know 90210? I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, my older sister was a big fan. Yeah, I, I did not know, I didn't real, or at least I didn't realize that she got fired after only three seasons on the show because she was a really big deal at the time. Uh, yeah. But apparently she was fighting with her co-stars uh, and it actually turned physical at one point. And so uh, she was booted from the show and uh, she, you know, she made well for herself after that. She did Mall Rats. Um, so she has her place in pop culture history. Courtney Love, she sued her doctors for leaking information about her methadone treatment. And I, this one you may not know, Different Strokes. Do you remember Different Strokes? Yep. Well, uh, his star, Todd Bridges, uh, he was arrested for transporting meth at the time. So uh, good time for a lot of people in Hollywood. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> really great. Yeah. Looking at the entertainment landscape, number one on the Billboard chart was Mariah Carey, uh, who had her classic Hero, which is a real winner about, you know, Hero? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's just, you know, it makes sense why that's number one. It's such a good, just classic ballad. She She's such a great singer. It, it's, you know, unfortunately, she's kind of, entered that tabloid stage of her career at this point but at her best she was fantastic the follow-up though and number two was janet jackson's again do you know that song that one i don't think i know yeah it's funny because i mean like i said i was i was big into music at the time and it just it, it just escaped me i do not know this song Now, this is another ballad right after Mariah Carey, so it's kind of strange that back-to-back you have these very, like, mellow, kind of, like, not exciting songs. And, and I guess, like, like, Christmas, maybe. People are in that mood. Yeah, I mean, from that perspective, yeah, I could get it. It's, it's like, let's just hang out and chill. Uh, but just a song that, for number two in, in the country, really does not have an impact over the years. It, yeah, I was thinking it felt very generic. Like it sounded mm-hmm. like 10 other songs that I would recognize, but I'm like, I don't know if I've heard this one or if I've just heard the other songs that sound like it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, the Fall in Love With You again, that kind of catches my ear that I might've heard it on the radio at one point, but definitely not a big song to me. Mm-hmm. However, the next one, number three, was a true gem of Swedish pop mastery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you may know this one because it, it is a pretty big song. I'll play that. This is Ace of Bass. Yes! <laughs> Love a song. So this one obviously has had an impact and has a legacy to itself. All that she wants. Yes. I mean, it's hard to explain how big this song was at the time. I think part of it is the fact that the lyrics are pretty weird because uh, it's like all she wants is another baby. And it's like, I don't know if there's a Swedish mistranslation here uh, because it, or is it really about she just wants to have a baby and because she talks about all the lovers she has in the song and all this. Or like a baby, like, you know, a, a term of endearment for That's, that's what I lover. hope it is. But people yeah. are like, what is going on in this song? 
Thing, you know it definitely was um you know it, it was huge and it's still to this day is a pretty big song uh you know pe- you put it on people know that song yeah you know it, but it was a bit of an outlier because it was a dance it was a fun like you know catchy beat beat song but like i said the first two were ballads and then after the other ballads like meatloaf's i would do anything for love but i won't do that <laughs> Yes. And then after that, All for Love from the film The Three Musketeers, which I confuse with the one from Robin Hood. But this one, it's also Brian Adams. And um, it also had Sting and Rod Stewart on it, which I did not know. I thought it was just Brian Adams, but all three of them were on that track. Huh. I didn't yeah. know that either. And I love that song. So It's I'm a great surprised. song. <laughs> great power ballad. Absolutely. <laughs> The thing is, at number six, I love. This is one of my favorite parts of doing the show: is finding songs that I have no memory at all of, and neither the band nor the song. And for this one, number six, "Gangsta Lean" by DRS. I've never. I, I mean, I, I'll play it for you, but you. I mean, Nothing. it's just, it's completely a generic kind of swing, new jack kind of song. It's repetitive. It's all get out. There's, it just repeats the same verse over and over again. I don't ever hear anybody talking about this band or this song. It's had no, like, impact on anybody, in my opinion. Was I could this, play this like their hit? This was their one song? As far song? as I can tell, it was okay. it. That was it. The thing about it, though, that I find, that may have been the reason why it made it on the charts, although for list, just listening to it, it's not good, um, is the video. Because the music video for it is insane. It's this black and white, super dramatic uh, thing about um, like uh, you know a gangster war in um, in the in the wherever they are, and people are getting shot, and people are crying over bodies, and there's a funeral. It's 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 a ridiculous video, and maybe that video helped push it up the charts. People are checking out the song because they like the video, uh, but man, I wouldn't listen to that song. I wouldn't choose to listen to that song again. That's definitely true. MTV definitely made me listen to a lot of songs that I, they're, well, the video is cool, so. Is there a, a, a song where you, like, you, the video was as important to you as the song was? <laughs> this is, like, so random, but, like, Stacy's mom had okay. a great music video. It's a great music video, absolutely. You know, playing a lot on that, you know, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High imagery. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. For, for me, it's, uh, there's a song uh, called California by a band called Wax, which you've probably never heard of the song or the or the vi- or the mm. band. The thing about the video is it was an early work by Spike Jones, and um, the whole video is a man engulfed in fire running for a bus, and it's it's shot in slow motion, and it's amazing to watch. It's just this insane visual of this man on fire running for the bus as the song plays. And I will never forget it because it's just that impactful of, of visual. And obviously, Spike Jones went on to be huge um, in directing. And so this was like, for me, I would never remember the song California by Wax. I can, you know, the second I think about it, I know the band, I know the song, but that video is the only reason why, because and it's not a bad song, but I wouldn't remember it without that guy on fire. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's a statement. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about visuals, we'll jump over to TV. Uh, which was a very different time than what we experience now on TV because there was basically no reality television on the air. Uh, the closest thing you had was the William Shatner hosted Rescue 911, which uh, dramatized 911 calls. And that was uh, number nine on the, on the charts on CBS. Uh, the week was led by 60 Minutes, which still obviously on the air, uh, followed by Home Improvement at number two, 
uh, home improvement uh, very strong at the time. I'm surprised we haven't got a reboot of that yet, uh, considering, you know, uh, I don't think Jonathan Taylor Thomas is doing anything right now. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's been some trouble with like a couple of the kids on the show, oh, okay. of, like them getting into trouble. Mm, um, that might do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it feels like they would have pushed it through anyway and just kind of made a, done a re, like at least a reunion show or something, but. Or just replace them. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Like they, like they did with Roseanne, which was uh, also on the chart at the time, um, along with Grace Under Fire and Coach, which um, they're not quite there yet. But uh, NBC had Seinfeld and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which actually came in 10th. It wasn't one of the top shows. It was number 10. Obviously, it's high on the chart, but not one of the top shows. You know, it's kind of weird that of the shows that were on the air, four of them are currently on the air now in some form or another. And then we still have that Fresh Prince reboot coming. <laughs> called Bel Air. So it's like, you know, at some point that we're going to get a reboot of Murder, She Wrote, which was number eight. And it's going to be a hot Jessica Fletcher at that point. I know it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's going to be like her niece or something. It's going to be the new Jessica Fletcher of some, it's not going to be Cabot Code Maine, because I don't think you can get away with a TV show now based in some small town of Maine, but it'll be Jessica Fletcher's niece in LA probably, and she'll be solving crimes. I'm confused, though. Are you implying that the original Jessica Fletcher was not the hot Jessica Fletcher? <laughs> For me, as a kid, as a young, as a 16-year-old, I'd say, eh, not really. <laughs> Maybe, you know, later on, I might have. <laughs> but I definitely think we're going to, we're due for a Murder, She Wrote reboot because, I mean, it's just, it's a great idea. I mean, it'll be, a, you know, it'll be a popular podcaster who covers, uh, you know, um, murder stories, and then she has to solve murder, you know, murder stories in real life. I know it's coming. And if that happens, I want my money because I just came up with that. (laughs) I would watch it. Oh, great. I got already got a viewer. There you go. (laughs) Over on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, the hottest fiction writer in America was Robert James Waller. Do you know Robert James Waller? Robert James Wallard. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, you know, and the book number one was Slow Waltz in Cedar Bend, which again, nobody really knows. But most people know the next book on the chart, number two, which was also by Robert James Waller, which was The Bridges of Madison County, which became a huge movie with Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep. And so obviously that helped push a slow waltz in Cedar Bend up to number one. And we never got a movie of that because I guess people got tired of watching Robert James Waller movies or something. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened there, but hey, uh, maybe one day we'll get that sequel to The Bridges of Madison County. I don't know if anybody dies in that movie, so if anybody does, I never watched it really. So you know, if, <laughs> if we can't have a sequel, fine. That's it's all fine. <laughs> Over on the nonfiction side, uh, Rush Limbaugh's See I Told You So was number one, followed by a very different and far more entertaining uh, also radio personality in Howard Stern's private parts. So you had number one and number two were books about radio people. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think radio (laughs) was a big deal back then. Is there such a thing as a radio star now? I mean, podcast people. Yeah, I guess that's what you'd have to assign it to, right? Yeah. I don't know if they've seen any podcast books. I have to think about that. Uh, Does Joe Rogan have a book? (laughs) I don't know. No, but yeah, I'm thinking about like the earwolf comedy people and um yeah i don't think they've they've branched out into books i mean some of them have tv shows now but mm. i guess you're busy doing podcasts since most of them are on many many podcasts at the same time yeah that's true <laughs> at the box office uh shockingly the deb- debut of tombstone was not number one in theaters and it wasn't even number two uh it came in at number three making 14.4 million dollars that's because the reigning champ that week was after six weeks it's already been in theater six weeks and was still number one Robin Williams, Mrs. Doubtfire. Okay. 
Sure. <laughs> I love that movie, but watching it as an adult, I'm like, wow, Sally Field puts up with so much in this movie oh, yeah. and we're casting him as the hero <laughs> in this scenario. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a bit twisted. You know, you look at it in retrospect, but six weeks and it was still at number one and they're in $26 million and it's six weeks. That's, that's just crazy to me <laughs> that people were still watching films like, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire. They were going back again and again to watch that movie. I'm like, once you watched it once, what were you doing? Why did you have to see it again? I guess it was one that you could bring your kids to because I yes. saw it when I was probably that age. And mm. I guess, you know, if the kids are off from school, you kind of take them <laughs> to see that. Oh, yeah, it is Christmas time. So people yeah. have to do something. Well, not now, but <laughs> uh, number two was uh, Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts in the legal thriller, The Pelican Brief, which made $23 million in the second week. Uh, so that was doing well. And that's, that's a solid movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I don't think so. I know my mom had it on VHS, though. So I knew of it. <laughs> After Tombstone, uh, number four was Whoopi Goldberg with Sister Act 2. And then yet another sequel in Beethoven 2 right behind it. So, I, I mean, a lot of kids movies. I, I mean... This year, obviously, that you don't have kids' movies because there's no kids, there's no theaters, there's no anything right now. But yeah, I guess that was the big deal. Like you said, Christmas time, just got to find something to do. And, and they're watching these sequels in theaters. Uh, the only other debut in the top 10 was the Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon comedy, Grumpy Old Men. Um, ever seen that one? I think actually at my grandmother's house, <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's not bad. I mean, it, it's, it, it was a little formulaic, but it's not bad. I mm -hmm. like Jack Lemmon a lot. So, you know, I'll take him in most things. And then we get another sequel after that in Wayne's World 2, uh, which uh, was solid in there. And then a movie I just don't know. I don't remember it. Geronimo and American Legend. No. Yeah, no, it doesn't stick in the head. Um, it was directed by the Warriors' Walter Hill uh, from a script by John Milius. So it's got a really good pedigree there. And it stars Jason Patrick, Gene Hackman, and Robert Duvall, as well as Wes Studi in the title role. That's a solid film, but I have no memory of this film at all. Yeah, no, me either. I've never even heard of it. It might be worth checking out because Matt Damon makes an early appearance in it. Uh, it's <laughs> one of his first featured roles, so it'd be interesting to see what he's like before he became a star, uh, well before uh, Good Will Hunting. So definitely worth checking out, I think, uh, especially with the rest of that cast. Wes, Wes Studi is very good. The rest of the top 10, it gets wrapped up by The Piano. The Three Musketeers, where we got that song before. Yeah. And, and um, that week also, now this was a real, little weird to me. It was show, saw the debut of the animated classic Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which was a huge Batman film. It actually was in more theaters than Tombstone when it was released. And it only made $2.9 million. Hmm. It's hard to believe a Batman film would make that little money. <laughs> you know, now, but it was a different time, I think. For yeah. superhero films. And I think animated films too. Like True. I think they were kind of squarely in like the kitty category. Mm -hmm. And I don't, maybe audiences didn't really know what to, what to make of Batman movie that was a cartoon. That's a very good point because I mean, I know people who refuse to watch animation. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> it's not just for kids. It's, it's, you know, at this point, how can you not enjoy an animated film? Some of the best films we have are animated films. Yeah. You know, at least that film definitely grew in stature over time because it, it, it you know, it's, it's established itself. It's one of the, one of the best Batman films, live action or animated either way. It's got a great storyline in there. 
I've never seen it, but I know movies that I had when I was a kid on VHS, you know, like the 15 trailers that are before the Mm -hmm. movie on a VHS tape. There was one that I must have watched. It must have been one of my favorite movies at the time because I remember the the Mask of the Phantasm trailer, like every word of it pretty much. (laughs) It was a big deal for us. And uh, now it's even bigger because you've had generations who enjoy it. Mm. So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, we're going to talk about Tombstone. Welcome back. Uh, now we're going to talk about Tombstone. So Tombstone was written by Kevin Jari. Uh, he had one heck of a run uh, as a writer. Uh, unfortunately, he died very early at the age of 56 of heart failure. But he started out with Rambo First Blood Part Two was his first writing job. Then he wrote uh, the Civil War film Glory with Matthew Broderick. Uh, and then he wrote Tombstone after that. And then the Brad Pitt Harrison Ford drama, The Devil's Own, another great one. And then he did the story for the Brendan Fraser version of The Mummy. So like that is a solid run for anybody, yeah. you, know, you know, especially <laughs> somebody who died early in their, in their life like that, just to get that many great films right off the, like, I mean, not great, maybe not great, but some really solid films in there, stuff that people know and remember and like. Yeah, that's a good run. I, yeah. I would be proud of that run personally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, The Mummy alone. <laughs> I love The Mummy. I think it's a it's a, such a fun film, The Mummy, to to watch. And the fact that you wrote the story is is great. Yeah. Um, now, usually I would talk after the writer about the director. And that's where this film gets interesting. I don't know if you know much of the story about what happened behind the scenes with Tombstone. No, tell me. <laughs> Jari actually was the director when the film started. The, the writer was going to also direct. And he, he did. He started shooting. He shot uh, several scenes with Charlton Heston. And those, film, those scenes are in the film. They kept that, that, moment, that stuff he shot. And then they replaced him as director. And I've never gotten, found a really good explanation of why he was no longer the director. I don't know. Maybe they didn't like the scenes because, I mean, we'll talk about it later. But they're not the greatest scenes in the world with Charlton Heston in the film. But he was replaced by George P. Cosmatos. I'm saying that wrong. Cosmatos. Now, Cosmatos worked with Jari on Rambo First Blood Part Two, and then he directed Sylvester Stallone again in Cobra. The thing is, supposedly he didn't direct this movie. In a 2006 interview, Kurt Russell claims that he directed the movie. <laughs> and that Cosmatos was basically like a babysitter there to make sure things went smoothly while Kurt Russell directed the film. I don't know if I believe that. First of all, it's a $25 million film, which if you inflate it for 2020, it's like a $43 million film. And they're going to give it to somebody who's never directed after they have problems with the first director. I don't think that's the case. Also, Russell's never directed anything else in his career. If you've directed Tombstone, which is a pretty popular film and well-received for the most part, wouldn't you want to do it again? <laughs> like, wouldn't you direct again? Yeah, that's... Honestly, it feels a little bit like an I am Spartacus situation where like a bunch of people are taking credit for it. The it only way I could conceivably imagine it is if there was an issue with the director, one of the actors sort of stepped in to fill the void out of sheer necessity. And then as the film kind of progressed, they were like, okay, well, we we need somebody to have oversight. Mm. Like, I'm not going to tell you to stop because we like what's happening here. But but even then, you're right. I don't know why he wouldn't, unless he hated directing it and he just happened to be good at it. And then he's like, <laughs> never doing this again. But I guess it that's would, entirely possible. Yeah, it's weird that he wouldn't have done other films because obviously like the cachet when you're an actor turned director is like really oh, yeah. high. So, I mean, who wouldn't want to be in control of the whole film? Yeah. 
and especially like this was a success it's not yeah. you know it's not like it bombed no and the other thing okay so I watched this on the Vista series DVD. So the Vista series DVD has a commentary by George Cosmatos. And he talks all about produ- produ- uh, putting the film together as a director. He talks all about details in the film, scenes that he shot, all this stuff that is really highly detailed and inf- informative about the making of the film. So how does he know all how do you how does he have all that information if he didn't actually direct the film but interestingly enough you can't get his commentary anymore on any version after that release they've taken the commentary off the film on blu-ray and anything after that so it's like what's going on here with tombstone the plot thickens yeah it's really interesting Maybe Kurt Russell directed like three days in the interim and he's misremembering. He's like, yeah, I directed Tombstone. <laughs> I just wonder why they won't, they don't release his commentary again. Cause did he make it all up did, or is he like, <laughs> like, or is there some sort of legal entanglement here that they, you know, they don't want him talking about it and he's trying to claim credit or he should have credit and Kurt Russell is claiming the credit. I'd love to know the, the true story behind all of this, what the final word is on who directed Tombstone, but I don't know if we'll ever know. Yeah, and like, I don't know if when you record a commentary, who has rights to that commentary? Because like, mm-hmm. if, I don't know, Paramount owns, I, I don't know who owns the film, but like if, you know, a studio owns the film and then they record the commentary and then rights go to like a different distributor, do they maintain rights to the commentary? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, in this case, it was Hollywood Pictures, and then Disney owns them, and Disney keeps releasing the stuff. So hmm. there's no real changing hands of, of any kind of distributor here. It's very I, – I'd love to talk to – I don't know. Who would you talk to? I mean, Kurt Russell obviously Russell. is going to have, his, gonna have his, sto- <laughs> his side of the story, and Cosmatos is going to have his side of the story. You need some independent – I need to talk, need to to talk Val to Val Kilmer. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> One day I will talk to Val Kilmer and find out the truth of Tombstone. This is my most important question. <laughs> Who directed Tombstone? He's going to be like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know. I was there. I just... <laughs> the film wastes a little time getting into it because it starts with this really good exposition of old footage of the, of the West and you have this narration from Robert Mitchum and he explains everything basically. It's, it's like a classroom lesson right here where he says that, you know, the expansion of the West followed the civil war in America and that people chased their fortunes out West. And the city of Tombstone was a big deal in all this because it was the capital of all this expansion. And that in Tombstone, you had Wyatt Earp, who was a former lawman and you had Doc Holliday who was there because he hoped the dry weather would help his tuberculosis, which we have to remember because that's very important to this film, the tuberculosis. <laughs> So we find out from this that this is also the start of organized crime in America, which I didn't really realize uh, because the uh, cowboys, a band of criminals, were the ones who reigned terror all over the new frontier. This film, a lot of it feels very dramatized because it is, you know, it's, it's obviously they've taken some liberties with some of the stuff that happened in the film. But in researching more about the film, a lot of it is actually spot on including the the cowboys who were you know when you think of cowboys you think of ranch hands and farmers and stuff like that not this criminal organization was just killing people left and right yeah and that's that's really interesting because like i think that is true that when you have these like posses and groups and stuff that does kind of take on an atmosphere of organized crime i wasn't sure if it was like overstating the correlation between or like if 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 it was as widespread as they're making it seem but 
could have been i don't know yeah there's there. not a lot of law out west that's for sure it was yeah. it was pretty much i mean that's the re- reason why they call it the wild frontier you know it it things you took things into your own hands basically and we'll we'll talk a lot about that in this film yeah and i loved in that intro bit where they mentioned um that there was more crime in the old west than in modern day new york and los angeles mm. and i was like okay this is definitely made in 1993 <laughs> they have to lean into that like violent cities in america yeah. aspect to it <laughs> Well, we get some of that violence because we get a wedding that gets interrupted by the cowboys who ambush it, seeking revenge for the killing of two of their own. And they're led by Curly Bill Broski. Um, and I did honestly did not recognize him as Powers Booth because, I mean, you've seen this guy in so many gifs online and so many memes, you know, because of his byline. <laughs> yes. He's the, he, you know, th- he, this movie is possibly better known for that gif than anything else in the world. Yes, I was watching this with my husband earlier and we got to that point and I was like, wait, the, the, the meme is from that, from this? Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. A lot of Deadwood actors in this too. This is true. I mean, the cast, we'll, we will talk a lot about the cast of this film because it is an incredible cast. Everybody you could ever think of was in a Western is probably in Tombstone. Uh, and, you know, in Powers Booth, he is, you know, we just saw him last episode in McGruber and it's such a different performance in this, but every time he's on screen, he is a powerful presence, no matter what he's doing. Yeah, no, he was great. I loved his just general attitude. Mm. Was was very very good. Yeah, he's so imposing, and like you know, I I don't know, like you know, at first when I saw him, I'm like, wait, I know this guy. I know what he like. He's he's a bad guy, obviously, but he definitely has a bit more of a a purpose to him than your average stereotypical Western bad guy. He is, he's there for a reason. It's not a great reason, but he's there. He is driven by his own you know, motivation and he lives up to it throughout the film. He, he never deviates from who he is. No. And I, I feel like he did have something that went really far beyond the traditional growly, mm. like bad guy. There was just something about his presence that felt, um, it's, I mean, it's not modern at all, but it feels no. like a, a more um, contemporary interpretation of a character, which I was like, oh, interesting. Like the well byline is like, all right. I definitely think that this film, it doesn't go all the way. It doesn't do like a, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet where it brings modern music and everything to an a, a old fashioned style, but it definitely has an attitude that doesn't feel Western-y, even though it's telling a Western story. There's There's a very... Um, contemporary, like you said, contemporary feel to a lot of the action and and characters that I appreciate because it helps make it a little easier to connect to than if they were just these wooden, you know, uh, lawmen and cowboys and all that. Yeah. After killing the bride, the groom, and the priest, you know, you know he, this guys are do, killing everybody. The bad guys sit down to enjoy the wedding feast, and Johnny Ringo, who's played by Michael Ben, who I'm not a I didn't really connect with Michael Ben. I don't know him very well. I know he's been around for a while. It's funny on the uh, DVD, there's a trailer and they, they name Michael Ben as one of the stars of the film. And I'm like, huh, Michael Ben? Like, I mean, what are you selling here? I mean, <laughs> I don't know why you, Michael Ben is a big deal to this film. Was this after, yeah, it would have been. So I guess like Terminator and Aliens. I guess. I but, mean, that's, but that's all I can think of. But you've got a film with Val Kilmer and you know Kurt Russell and <laughs> Charlton Heston, for that matter, and like Michael Ben. I'm like, oh, okay. He's got a good agent, you know? <laughs> I guess so. Made a good deal there. 
Well, he tells Curly Bill that because the, the priest said something in Spanish that they couldn't understand. And Cur he tells Curly Bill, he said, and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat upon him was death and hell followed with him. That is some nice foreshadowing. <laughs> like this, you know, this was well written by Kevin Jari, just because that line follows through right up until the, you know, the very end of the film, that pale horse, uh, the idea of death. It is the mood setter for this entire film. Yeah, and there's like a repeated kind of devil motif throughout mm. the film, like in that theatrical scene um, where they're doing the Faust um, oh, yeah. interpretation and they're talking about that, like, what would you sell your soul for? And he's like, I already did. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's like it definitely keeps coming back. <laughs> so we cut to a train and we now have the arrival of Wyatt Earp and he's played by the great Kurt Russell, who, I mean, I don't know your personal opinion of Kurt Russell is, but I I don't think I've ever disliked a performance by him. No, he's amazing. That's <laughs> that's my opinion. Um. I, I think it's a lot of our opinions. I think I think that's one thing as Americans we can kind of agree on is Kurt Russell's great. He doesn't get the credit he deserves. No, I he think can he's taking unite the us. Yeah, he can <laughs> unite America. <laughs> Kurt Russell, twenty twenty four. No, twenty twenty eight. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think we're good without him as president. <laughs> He can represent it or something. Yeah, like maybe that. we don't need entertainers as president anymore. Maybe. Yeah, let's let's try to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he's met at the station by some U.S. marshals, and they're looking to recruit him, but it's he makes it clear he has no interest. He is here to make money. He wants stacks on stacks, and he is here to do the job. But he does not want to help anybody. That's not what this is all about. He's way more excited to see his brothers, who I was also excited to see because you know you've got Sam Elliott and Bill Paxton. I was like holy cow, this movie has everybody. Yeah, the trio back together again. <laughs> so good. I mean, I was, I, I had to say, I was a little confused. The idea that Kurt Russell and Sam Elliott were brothers. I was like, is that his dad? Yeah, I full on <laughs> thought he was his dad. And then I was like, wait, I guess this was like almost 30 years ago. So, okay. He's and brother, also but... I didn't realize, okay, so Sam Elliott was born in 1944. Kurt Russell, just six years later. I That's mind-blowing. Sam Elliott was born like a disgruntled 40-year-old <laughs> man and then just aged from there. So I guess I can like see that. But He's born an old man. That's absolutely, that's, that's, that's the story of With Sam Elliott. With a full mustache. Oh, full and, mustache, like, absolutely. gravel in his throat. <laughs> Hi, Ma. <laughs> we also get to meet their, their wives. All three of them have their wives, including Wyatt's wife, Maddie. She says she's having headaches and she needs some laudium to help there. Just a minor detail, right? Like, we don't need to worry about that. The fact that they, this is the one thing we find out about his wife right off the yeah, bat. Yeah, that she's is that... a laudium addict. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you could have, like, maybe layered this in a little bit. Like, you know, like, instead of being the only thing we find out about his wife is that she has a headache and she's taking laudium all the time. <laughs> yeah, and she's, like, super twitchy. Even, oh, like... Yeah in situations where she doesn't need to be, she like does all these like weird double takes and mm. it's, it's a lot. It's a lot, maybe. It's, it's, it's a whole <laughs> lot. You know, I mean, we would have been nice and we do eventually, you know, we learn a little more about her, not much, but a little more. Uh, it would have been nice to have her be a more fully formed character than just the Laudium addict, like you said. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's hard because it's like, how likable can you make this character if you're planning on having Kurt Russell like leave her? And that's really mm. not the point of the story that, you know, like his relationship isn't the whole point, but it's true. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so the guys also mentioned Doc, and you know, 
Wyatt says he missed him. Virgil, not so much. You know, he's not a big fan of, of Doc. And that gives us a chance to see the man himself. Val Kilmer enters the film at this point. And he's doing that flip the coin thing down his fingers, which he did in Real Genius. It's his, his, his that's his thing. That's his, he's all about showing that little dexterity that he has. And he's in the middle of this high stakes poker game. And Kilmer is putting on an acting clinic. I mean, this scene alone would have made this film. <laughs> He's so good. Like from the very, like the first second you see him, you're just like drawn into his whole vibe. And I don't need to tell you like how easy it would be for this Southern gentleman shtick to go badly wrong oh, in yeah. a, someone else's hands. Um, mm -hmm. Kenneth Brown, a wild, wild west. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but no, but he's, it, it's exact. It's judged so well. Like the amount mm. that he puts into it is just perfect. There's a line that he says early on. I'm going to just play that line because I love the way it's one word in the whole thing that he just, he puts an inflection on that is beautiful. Kate, you're not wearing a bustle. How lewd. That lewd <laughs> is everything. So good. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, at this point, and I was thinking about this as I was thinking about the film more and more, we don't know if Doc Holliday is a good guy or a bad guy at this point. And he could be either. He could, he could easily be the villain of the film. He could be the hero of the film. And yet we love this character right now. He is so wonderful. Oh my God. He's, he's so good. I do. I love that lewd. I love his huckleberries. Mm. Um, whenever he says that, which was in like the clip at the beginning, um, He's just got those those words that he just nails. I'm like, yes, say it I mean, again. Every time he talks, I'm like, ooh. <laughs> when he has the conversation with Ed, are we cross? Does this mean we're not friends anymore? <laughs> you know, Ed, I thought if you were my friend, I don't think I could bear it. Like, it's just, he's so smooth. I mean, just silky. And, you know, but then when he proceeds to stab Ed <laughs> and then steal all the money, it's like, wait, is this our hero or is this our villain i don't know at this point yeah he he definitely like crosses some lines with because you know we always know like doc holiday character traditionally like a gambler and a drinker but mm -hmm. this is like theft this is stabbing i was like oh is this a doc holiday who's just like a straight criminal mm -hmm. <laughs> but but he's he's got layers i think is the point the curious thing is if they made him the villain of the story say the ending of this film was a showdown between wyatt earp and doc holiday who would you side with? Oh my like, God, Doc Holliday. Like, exactly. Could, like, could you imagine if they had gone that direction and we, grew, we spent the last 30 years celebrating a villain in this film? Well, I think like part of the whole like traditional story of like shoot out of the OK Corral is, is really built around like that friendship. So I would be so sad if they ever made a movie where they had them as enemies. But mm. but I like I and I love um the one part where Doc Holliday is like he's saying like well he's my friend and the other guy's like well I have a lot of friends and he's like well I don't this is my only <laughs> friend so I'm gonna stand up for him. That was <laughs> the best line. I don't have a, I have a, I have one friend. <laughs> that was yeah, this, he said, this actually. is him. I'm gonna protect him. <laughs> So while this is happening, the Earp brothers, they're heading to Tombstone. So we're going to get everybody together. And they enter town. And the camera lingers on this tombstone. Appropriately enough, obviously, we're in Tombstone. Did you catch the epitaph? No, I didn't see it. Okay, so the epitaph is, Here lies Lester Moore. Four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. Okay, so this combined with the music, which is very, like, um, light and airy, 
I started to wonder about the tone of this film because it's R-rated, obviously, because of all the violence in it, but it almost feels like a Disney film, which, again, makes sense because it's owned by Disney. It may be not Disney films, but it is a Disney corporation that owns this film. And I'm like, are we going to tell a lighthearted story of the Old West shootouts? Like, that's kind of a weird way to handle this, especially after we just met Doc Holliday stabbing a guy. Yeah, yeah, there are moments like that where it's like very light and and I I, I mean it works, but yeah, mm-hmm. I could see if you were, you know, if you didn't know which way it was going to go to be like, "Oh, are we doing like a western comedy vibe? Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening here." Yeah, it's a little a little confusing tone and I wonder again, we have three directors, maybe that's the problem is that we don't, you know, things are all over the place because we don't know who shot what scene. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> definitely true. <laughs> So we get the lay of the land, uh, including the fact that the cowboys have control over the town, uh, as well as some virulent anti-Chinese racism. Holy cow. I mean, like, I know it was a thing, but whew. like the fact that the, the, the mayor just introduced himself as the head of the anti-Chinese league. I'm like, oh boy, like this is not going to go well. He, he let and us ob- know who he was right away. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was no doubt there. Who, who is, I didn't look up. Do you know who played the mayor? Because that, that oh, is like a, earlier. Um, that, that, that performance is so villainous like from start to finish it's perfect i wanted it to be billy zane who is in this film <laughs> but like, you know, like it's not him in this moment like i was like oh that'd be a perfect billy zane role but mm, he's busy elsewhere <laughs> oh my god yeah oh my god i couldn't believe it when i saw billy zane pop up it blew <laughs> my mind um but yeah the the mayor guy is so slimy and just oh, like, just, and he's involved in everything. And that makes it very clear that this town is full of corruption and vice. You know, it's maybe it's not a Disney film after all, because things are not going well in this town. You know, there's a <laughs> lot of bad stuff happening. No, it's, it's crazy when they're, it's, it's at a really weird place where the town is like starting to develop, but all they seem to be interested in building are like saloons and gambling parlors and like, oh, let's build a racetrack. I don't know. Do you have a school yet? No, but we <laughs> no. want a racetrack. How about a hospital perhaps? Yeah, <laughs> like anything. Doc Holliday is the only doc you got in town and he probably is not somebody who should be treating you. No, no, not with tuberculosis. I would say that's a bad idea. <laughs> no. And also, I don't know if you know this, but apparently in the 1800s, American doctors just like, it was much more associated with butchers. Like a mm. lot of people learned how to be doctors through like working at butchers. That's what and you like want. in Europe, people were going to medical school. <laughs> and here you were like <laughs> training underneath another doctor who probably learned how to be a doctor from being like looking at butcher stuff. Yeah, that's probably why people tend to die early back then. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't have helped. No, not at all. So we then get to see Wyatt Earp at work because although he's not going to be a lawman, he's got work to do. Because he enters a bar and he uh, sees that it's, it's struggling. It's not having a great time. And that's because there's a dealer who set up shop there and he's driven out the higher end clientele. He's made it basically like a slum. And if you had any question about who Wyatt Earp was in this film, it was settled right here in this scene. Because <laughs> he gets in the dealer's face, tells him to pull his gun, and then slaps him, just slaps the taste out of his mouth <laughs> and says you're going to do something or just stand there and bleed. Amazing. Like that is why you cast Kurt Russell. Perfect. (laughs) I have no notes. (laughs) I mean, he throws the guy out now says I'm taking 25% of this casino and this saloon, which is wow. I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, like how they say, uh, and obviously this didn't work out quite as well in the Trump administration where 
if you're looking for somebody to run to take care of criminals, you hire a criminal because they know how criminals think. Apparently, hiring Wyatt Earp, who knew how criminals think, because he's a lawman, now can be a criminal, because <laughs> he just takes everything he wants, which is crazy. And you know, again, we're not going to get a character who is the stereotype white knight, you know, um, the the clean and, and decent lawman. Why this Wyatt Earp is got sides to him. He's not just one thing, and I think that that make and that's again, again, why you cast uh, Kurt Russell because he can play a character like that. He is not going to be the Captain America, he's going to be the darker hero. Yeah, and I really appreciated that level of complexity. Like, he's not just a white hat. I loved when he's talking to his brothers about, like, what the actual implications of getting involved in a shootout are. And, Mm. like, what happens if you decide to go after people for, like, committing minor crimes in town? Like, this can can open a door and you don't know where it's going to go and you don't know what it's like to kill people. I do. Mm -hmm. It's awful. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, unfortunately, though he threw the dealer out, he's back now with a shotgun and he's about to blow Wyatt away when Doc Holliday stops him with a single word and sets up what, in, in my opinion, is one of the best scenes of this film. Because as this guy's standing there with a shotgun, who's about to kill Wyatt Earp, now listens to the Earp Boys and Doc Holliday just chit chat and just ignore the guy with the gun standing right there. <laughs> oh my god, it's so emasculating! It's oh my amazing. god, <laughs> it, I mean that's the exact word I wrote down in my notes: emasculating, because Doc Holliday looks at this guy and says, "Oh Johnny, I apologize. I forgot you were there. You may go oh. now." You- <laughs> You may go now. That it, he's a man with a shotgun, and Doc Holliday cut him down with a few words. Amazing. Well, in the tone of voice too, it's like so genteel, but like oh, so cutting. It's so amazing. condescending. Just like, are you even here? Why? Just go. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And like, and leave the shotgun. Oh yes, this is and the he best just part. like sadly puts it down. <laughs> I mean, I. I mean, I love Val Kilmer, obviously. I have a show about him. You know, <laughs> you know I, I tend to be a bit biased about this. But this, this performance as Doc Holliday, really, I mean, he has films people know him for and love him for. But this film might be the most fully formed Val Kilmer role he's ever played or will ever play. Because it brings everything that he is good at together in one film. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I, I mean, full disclosure, I haven't seen like, every single piece of Val Kilmer's um, like filmography. But I feel like the stuff that I know him from more is, is very early on in his career, sort mm-hmm. of like the teen young adult roles, like Real Genius and stuff like that and like Top Gun. Um, but I feel like this really showcases what he can do as an actor. Yeah, especially dealing with the fact that he, you never forget that he has tuberculosis. That's never something that he leaves out of his performance. It's always there a little bit, even when he's feeling okay, you know he's not perfect. He's a little cut back in his, his dialogue. He's never pushing it out. He's never, you know, he's somebody who has limited lung capacity. So he's never loud. Everything is very close to the chest, very low key. And that's, that makes it a perfect performance in my opinion. Yeah, and screenwriters take note. I don't think there's a point in the film where they show him like discreetly coughing into a handkerchief and then revealing the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is overdone with tuberculosis mm -hmm. narratives. So I appreciate that like that wasn't part of his performance. Like he has yeah. some coughs, he has like the pastiness and like the sweatiness of mm -hmm. somebody who is very ill, but it's it's not to me, even in the top five things that I think of when I think of his portrayal of Doc Holliday, like, oh, the fact that he's, you know, he has tuberculosis, like I'm, I'm, I'm so much more, you know, I, I notice so much more the other qualities about him, which I think mm -hmm. is right, that it's, it's there, but it's not everything. Oh, absolutely. So now the sheriff enters the picture and they discuss the growth of Tombstone because, you know, Doc describes it as a mining camp, <laughs> but the sheriff says, uh, it's going to be challenging San Francisco in a few years only to have a shootout right behind him in the middle of town, ending up killing two people over a gambling argument. I love again, Doc comes through and he's like, how very cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've, you've combined all the lines that Val Kilmer delivers in this film. I mean, and there's honestly, when you think about it, not a lot. He only, he's only in a few select moments here and there. He dominates this film just by his, his performance. Yeah, every time he pops up, I'm like, okay, stuff's happening. Let's do this. <laughs> um, but yeah, he is, he's, like you said before, soft-spoken. Um, and there are scenes where he's like lingering in the background and he knows he's there, but he's mm -hmm. not dominating, you know, with his demeanor. So. But you want, you want, waiting for him to jump in. You're like, yeah, you know, there's going to be those few <laughs> moments where he asserts himself and just destroys everyone. And it's amazing. <laughs> so now there's two people dead and, you know, the cops just take the guns from the murderers and let them roam free, which some things never change, apparently. <laughs> yep. The gun commentary in this film is a treat. Oh, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that because it's going to come up later uh, how gun control is actually a, an element in this film, which is, uh, we'll talk about that. But what's more important at this moment is the arrival of Dana Delaney because she rolls into town in all her finery as Josephine and her co-star, Mr. Fabian, who, Billy Zane, there he is right there, the perhaps most beautiful man in the film, you know, just, he is, he is gorgeous. And, you know, we get this wonderful exchange between the two of them because they step out and she sees wider. And it's, you know, again, this film, although, like you said, it didn't play up the tuberculosis on the part of Doc Holliday, the film doesn't like to be subtle in other ways because immediately we know Josephine wants Wyatt Earp and she's going to go after Wyatt Earp because, you know, he says to her, my dear, you set your gaze upon the quintessential frontier type. Note the lean silhouette, eyes closed by the sun. You're sharp as a hawk. He's got the look of both predator and prey. And she responds, I want one. <laughs> and he says, happy hunting. <laughs> I love that happy hunting. Yes, like, it, it's fantastic. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this film i mean whoever is the director of this film in reality or if it's all of them they got perfect line line performances from almost the entire cast i mean everybody delivered their lines to the umph just like they just like they went for it and they they really delivered on all parts i, I can't think of a bad performance in the film if there is it's, it's overpowered by everybody else's yeah, there's no bad performances. There's performances that maybe aren't as great as like the best ones in it, but they're not bad. No. Um, and then we get a bit of a diversion. Like you mentioned before, we get to see a play. We get to see the Faust play. Um, and we see Wyatt see Josephine on the stage. And so before Josephine saw Wyatt, now Wyatt sees Josephine. We've got our story set up there because obviously something's going to happen to these two. There's, there's no doubt. You can't. You can, you can have no doubt that there's going to happen here especially when we find out that there's problems between Wyatt and his wife, because he's very concerned about her use of laudium. 
Now, I was curious about this because, you know, I know like back then cocaine was readily available for treating illnesses. You know, it was in, you know, cough syrup. You, know, you, had, yeah. you had cocaine everywhere. Did, would he, why would he have been worried about laudium? Like, I get that she's a little off in places and she uses a lot of it. But back then, they didn't really understand that, except for maybe opium um, was a well, big problem. Well, laudanum is opium. It's got yeah, opiates in it. But it's prescribed by a doctor. So I think, I feel like back then, like, they would have been less concerned about that, perhaps? Well, I think, like, because of the opium in it, like, I think people knew of stories where mm. people became addicted and I, I think like you wouldn't be able to hide that addiction and there are like pamphlets about like opium eaters and like these mm. you know like this is what will happen to you um and so I think you know maybe people wouldn't have been super concerned about the fact that she was prescribed this but I think if you're married to someone and you start to see like oh whenever they take this they get real or whenever they don't take it they start to get real twitchy mm. maybe that's a problem um I guess also the drawer full of empty bottles might have been a concern as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's the same sort of thing with like when we're prescribed kind of opiates now. It's like, mm. yeah, they're prescribed. You take them and they're fine if you need them. But you also kind of know, okay, it's probably great. It's not a great idea to take a lot of these True. over a long period of time. He didn't really make a much of an effort to hide it, though. <laughs> you know, just no, toss them in just... the top drawer. And she just got these bottles of just liquid opium. Like, cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, we can talk about it now. But she did die of a laudium overdose. Uh, at you know, and not during the film, but after the film, uh, after the film story, I should say. Um, and so I don't know how that didn't happen during the film, considering the amount of bottles she had. <laughs> Yeah, I was very convinced that they were going to kill her off in the film so that yeah, it would there make would be sense. like a greater pathway, easier pathway, less morally whatever pathway for him to go after Josephine. Mm. And also give him something to anger him even further later in the film when he's when things are building to a climax because they start taking away things from the heroes. And I think that would have been a smart idea to, to take away his wife because then it serves two purposes, like you said. Yeah, and she honestly doesn't serve much of a purpose mm. alive. No. in the film <laughs> no. so i mean she's just kind of there to be i don't know frustrated with him that he's mm. doing other things and not giving her enough laudanum i don't know <laughs> yeah, more than anything she's an, basically an obstacle unfortunately yeah. she's a victim also but she's an obstacle yeah like within the narrative that we're presented with like she mm. is an obstacle yeah it's sad uh, so after a successful night at the saloon, Doc and Wyatt are you know, hanging out, and <laughs> Doc asks Wyatt about his marital status because uh, he's curious about you know what he's up to, and says, "What would you do if Josephine walked in?" And Wyatt says, "Oh, I'd ignore her." And of course, she walks right in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Wow!" Again, this film doesn't hold back when it wants to go for something. It really just says, "You know, here you go. Here's the setup, and here's the punchline. Boom." <laughs> What was interesting, though, is that Mr. Fabian also walks in, and he's welcomed by Billy Breckenridge, who is played by Jason Priestley, who was on Night When I Went Sharon Doherty, who we mentioned again. Again, who is not in this film? Nobody. Everybody's in this film. If you just look around, everybody's <laughs> in this film. I, I have to assume we're supposed to believe that Billy Breckenridge is gay. I think that's the subtext, yeah. Um, at I was shocked that that was Jason Priestley because I didn't realize it was him until I saw the credits. And I was oh. like, oh, wait, because not that I didn't recognize him, but because I was so thrown off, I think, by the idea of Jason Priestley in a Western that it just did not connect <laughs> he to He doesn't me. fit. Yeah, he doesn't fit in a Western. He's too clean. He's too, 
<laughs> he's pretty. just like very delicate, <laughs> delicate featured. Um, but yeah, I actually loved that. I loved his reaction to um, Billy Zane's Crispin's Day speech. I was like, hmm. this is really sweet. I kind of want to see like a sequel about them. So, <laughs> <laughs> It really struck me that they were playing up this little, like, you know, homosexual, you know, subplot between the two of them or a little storyline there because they are together several times in the film, we see. Um, and I thought, well, wait, this is the Old West. Wouldn't they have had a problem with the people around them if they, like, were, you know, being openly interested in each other? And But it didn't seem like the Cowboys gave him some hard time, but not too hard. They they brought him along with them at the, at the theater and had him sit next to him. So then I was like... I wonder, and I did some research and I found out that in the old West, homosexuality was not only prevalent, it was relatively accepted because it, it maybe perhaps in part out of necessity in some way, uh, because I found out 90% of the people in these frontier towns were men and there were not yeah. a lot of women. And so they didn't look down on homosexuality as almost like a, well, we got, we're here, we got to do this, you know, like, and so you had um, what was called a bachelor marriage, where you, two guys would basically act as a married couple, and, but nobody considered it unusual, or even technically gay, it was just, you know, this is what we got to do. And so this moment in this film actually makes sense in the, in the, in the, in the broad picture of Old West lifestyles they would have been fine almost yeah i feel like you maybe would get like i don't know because they they would say that they make fun of him that they were like they were always just making fun of him mm -hmm. um and I, I feel like yeah that would kind of be the extent of it i don't think you'd have like a hateful reaction to that because you're right i mean there there were a lot of like gay relationships in the old west because there aren't that many women around um and i think it's actually really interesting this is kind of off topic but in in the civil war era there were a lot of women who um, dressed as men during the war to either fight or just like keep themselves safe and then they were kind of like no I actually really like this like I, I this this feels right to me and huh. so there was like this community of you know um, trans people um, male presenting people um, after after the war so it's interesting yeah it's interesting I don't know yeah it's it, there's this whole world of uh, from a previous time that we kind of don't understand much about um and I, I think it's more interesting than we see stuff like this on screen because it allows us to explore it a little bit it encourages us to look into it wait wait what about those two and then you go you dig a little deep and you learn something new and i love that yeah no it's it's very interesting so at this uh bar after josephine comes in we get a standoff between doc holiday and ike clinton and so <laughs> Clinton puts on this dramatic display of flipping his gun around and spinning it on his fingers and all that. And he gets matched by Doc Holliday, who does the same thing, but with this little silver mug that he drinks his, his uh, liquor out of. I always considered Real Genius to be the epitome of Val Kilmer's performance because it was, every, it was his confidence, it was his smoothness, it was his comedy, his pathos, everything was in that one role. I think this role allows him to show things that he's never shown before, like that physical dexterity with that thing. He spins that mug around like doo -doo 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 -doo, <laughs> and, but, and he's so just funny while he's doing it. And I think that's what I love most about doing this show is because I find more and more things where I'm like, oh yeah, he is good beyond the things we know about. He, there are so many elements to his performances that we forget about because 
he gets locked into these main big roles that we remember him from. And then there's these little parts of them that we can explore more in depth by doing the show. And uh, I, I'm, it's just my little, I was, I was looking at it, I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to look at something that most people won't look at because they'll just move past that in the film. Here's our opportunity to look at somebody and say, there's more to this actor than just what we see at, on the big picture. We see the little things as well. All of these little bits of business are so, so good and um just has a great presence um that mm. i don't think he gets credit for in his sort of like bigger i guess movie star type roles mm -hmm. um yeah i always wonder you know and this is something i explore more in the series because there are some later roles mcgruber he's very good in mcgruber i don't know if you've ever seen it but he's he's a perfect villain in mcgruber and some other later roles where he's very good but i think he might have been somebody who overstayed their welcome and did movies they shouldn't have made that have diminished their stardom because now people remember the most recent less interesting roles than the good stuff they did before that yeah and it's hard because it's like you want to work mm -hmm. you want like you you want to take the jobs that are being offered to you um, oh yeah if you, and you he know, needs the money there's it's not like he has all the money in the world he needs the money unfortunately yeah and i think that ends up being you know a pathway where you take on a couple of films that are lower quality and then all of a sudden your cachet is, is maybe less than it was before. And so it just is this cycle, mm -hmm. um, which is unfair because I think that happens to a lot of actors. And it's like, no, they're great. They're just not being offered the projects that they should be or they're not taking the projects that they should be. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Like, especially Dan Delaney, who I don't see very much lately. I don't know if she's still acting, but she's pretty good in this film as Josephine. She's enjoyable. She gives a real uh, attitude to Josephine. She is. And I, you know, I think there are a few moments where I'm kind of like, is this going too much into making her like a modern woman? Mm. Um, like I like men, you know, I do what I want, but, <laughs> but I, I think she sells it. I think she has enough of stuff going on underneath that to, to make it not just like a cardboard cutout, like feminist figure. Um, I'm, I'm looking her up actually right now to see what other stuff she's done. Cause I'm not super familiar with her actually. Yeah. She was very big on TV um, back in the nineties. Uh, mm. And I don't know if recently I haven't seen much of her. Well, she's in the new movie, um, Wild Mountain Time, which has been getting oh. some like... Um, I actually just got a screener of that just now, just today. Well, watch it. <laughs> she is in the pub band. So oh. <laughs> that was the first credit that came up. So Everything just connects. Yeah, it's all, it's all there. Well, she, uh, she does some horseback flirting in this film <laughs> when she meets up with Wyatt yeah, in the next scene. Like you said... It's definitely, there's a, a, you know, this film, even though, uh, you know, we'll talk a bit more about um, some of the more progressive elements of the film. Uh, they all actually fit into the film. So definitely interesting that, like you said, it feels like she's a modern woman in an old time setting here. And she talks about happiness and like, what is, what makes you happy? And, you know, I wonder at the time when people's lives were very short and hard, there was a lot of work to be done. There wasn't a lot of free time, a lot of leisure, a lot of safety. And so would people think about happiness at that time? Would, I mean, perhaps somebody who's an actor whose job is not as hard as other people, um, you know, I, I don't care how hard you act, you still, you're acting. You're not breaking rocks. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a physically demanding job for the most part, unless you're Tom Cruise. Uh, you know, would they do have the freedom to do this so it, maybe it makes sense that she has these thoughts that other people just can't have 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think probably people in you know just sort of farming communities or whatever would have had just a different framework for happiness. Like, mm. I'm I'm fed. I'm my, alive. You know, my children are clothed. I have a, a roof over my head. I have a husband that doesn't beat me. Um, mm. You know, I'm content. I think probably more content than happy is like what you're striving for. Mm. But yeah, I think I think with Josephine, the idea of her being well traveled, well read you know, intelligent, has imagination, it's easy to see why she would be kind of expecting more than just, uh, you know, the basic necessities of life. Mm. Well, we get a quick uh, 180 because Wyatt returns home from flirting with Josephine and his wife's high yet again. And, you know, they get into it and, uh, well, actually, no, they didn't get into it at this point because she's passed out. <laughs> and he, uh, he tells her that they should travel the world. And so we immediately see Josephine's having a real influence on him. And um, we know this is not a happy marriage. This is not, this is not long for this film or this world for that matter. They are not going to be together when we're done with the story. No, especially juxtaposed with um, Virgil and his wife who are very close and mm. loving with each other. When you, when you see him and, and Maddie you are like, you guys don't even like each other. What is no. happening here? I would love to know how they got together. <laughs> Who knows? So Maddie's not the only one who's enjoying opium because we see Curly Bill high off his mind, <laughs> just out of his mind in the street shooting and he ends up killing the marshal. Uh, and so now Wyatt jumps into action and he takes him uh, captive and Billy Clanton now shows up who is played by Thomas Hayden Church. I'm like, again, everybody <laughs> is in this film. It's insane. And we get a standoff. Um, but Doc and Virgil have Wyatt's back. And again, like I said, you said this, I said this. When, he, when Doc Holliday shows up in the film, Val Kilmer's in this film. He's not in it for much, but he makes an impact every freaking time because he gets in, in there with his guns and the guy says, you're seeing double. And he says, well, I got a gun for both of you. <laughs> it's, it's a great scene. I love that. I love um, Kurt Russell when he just puts the gun to the guy's forehead and he's like, well, you're going to be the first one to die. So you get to mm. decide, like, even if everybody else takes me down, like, you're definitely going to be dead at the end of this. So make your decision. It's incredible. He does not, that's not verbatim. That's not what he actually no. says, because that would be bad writing, but <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> that's the gist. So some time has passed now. We find out Curly Bill went free. Nothing happened, despite the fact that he killed the marshal, because Nobody saw him kill him, which is great. You know, there's two guys out there. One has a gun. I mean, what? <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> that makes me so mad. It, it made me mad as well, and it, especially because it carries on to today, which is the most frustrating part. So the mayor comes to ask for help, and obviously none of the herbs are interested. Nobody wants to be a lawman, but something's up with Virgil. You can tell something's going on with Virgil, especially when he saves that kid from the horses running through town with the, with the cowboys. And we're like, what's up with Virgil? Something's up. And we know, find out immediately what's up with Virgil because the next day he is now the, the uh, sheriff of town. And he is putting into effect gun control, <laughs> which I was like, wow, that is wild that in 1993, we are pushing gun control as an idea and we still don't have gun control in 2020. And the thing is, that's even more frustrating about this, is that it literally happened in the time of the film. <laughs> like, they had gun control in Tombstone. <laughs> and the conversation they have about it, where there's, like, the outraged group of people from the town, they're like, we're not trying to take your guns, we're just mm. saying, don't bring your guns into town. I was like, oh my god, no. <laughs> yeah. 
They had better gun control laws in the time of Tombstone than we have now in our supposedly modern era, which is so frustrating, so insane, especially then when you see a cart go through town later on that talks about equal pay for it regardless of sex. And I was like, wait a second. Okay, so we have a gay relationship in this film. We have gun control. We have equal rights. And none of this has really been settled in hundreds of years after this film. And I was like, was this film just being too progressive, like being progressive at the time? No, this is all stuff that happened in Tombstone and in that time frame. People actually fought for equal rights at the time. Yeah, I mean, women got the vote out West way earlier than they did in the East because, you know, you're, you're living hard lives on farms. Like women are doing just as much work as men. It's easier for them to see like, okay, you are, you know, maybe you should get a vote. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's very frustrating it's very frustrating watching this film because i'm like you know we should be better than tombstone <laughs> yeah that's gonna, be... when i run for president that'll be my we have to be better than tombstone <laughs> it's a cultural touch point yeah <laughs> so then we see doc and doc is in the middle of a 36 hour poker binge and he's not looking good doc is in a bad place right now and we know things are going bad it, his tuberculosis is just going to kill him at this point because, I mean, he is white as a sheet. His eyes are ringed in red. He can't stand. I mean, he's lost the majority of his lung function at this time. So we are definitely now, at this point in this film, we are on the downslide. Everybody is suffering in this film. Wyatt finds all the bottles of laudium, so that's not going well with Maddie. And, you know, she confronts him about Josephine, and he doesn't say no, which is, you know... I mean, credit to him for not lying to her, you know, but wow, <laughs> like, that's not a good situation there. And then um, Wyatt gets into it with the Cowboys. And so now they're going to get their revenge on Wyatt and his family. You know, in the hero's journey, this is probably, you know, the low point right here in this film. And we really, everything falls apart for the Earp boys because Virgil gets shot and maimed. Um, Morgan gets shot and, and killed. They burned down a building in the town. Wyatt's suffering with his wife. You couldn't ask for a lower point at this point in this film. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot. And the film lets us know that this is outside the ordinary, even for this situation, by mm. having, like, Michael Rooker, who's also in this film, <laughs> yes. like, hey, this is too much even for me. I'm out of the Cowboys. So it clues yeah. you in, like, no, you should not be expecting, like, posses to be targeting people's wives and households and stuff. So it's bleak. Yeah, it's not boys. good. Not good at all. And we have, you know, the shootout at the OK Corral. I want to get your thoughts on the shootout at the OK Corral because in my mind, this was going to be the climax of the film. This happens 50 minutes from the end of the film. <laughs> it really is wild that this is not the end. This is this massive shootout where we face off, you know, good guys, bad guys. Doc Holliday is called into action despite the fact he's basically dying. And, but it kind of is just like another low point because it's an, it, they now are being um, considered to be arrested because they might have done this outside the rules of the law, attacking the guys because the, the bad sheriff is you know, against them now. To play this point that everybody knows, everybody knows the shootout at the OK Corral. It's a big deal. To play it as a relatively minor part of this film is an interesting choice on the part of the filmmakers. Yeah. I agree. Um, I think part of my one complaint about this film is that 
it probably should have happened about 20 minutes from the end of the movie. Mm. I think there's probably 20 minutes that could have been cut out of this movie. Um, but I think, I think it is also interesting that they underplay it a little bit because there's a moment when Wyatt Earp talks about being in a shootout and he says he's been in one. And mm. I was kind of like, how did he get this reputation if he's been in one shootout? Like, and I think it kind of plays to the idea of how we over-exaggerate or like embellish these legends from the West. Mm. And I think it's actually really interesting, and I don't know if it's purposeful, but to have this be sort of just an incident rather than an explosion. And um, so I thought, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, especially when later on we have two separate distinct montages of shootings that are really yeah. kind of like, why? <laughs> they're, they're just so, they seem so excessive in this film. Yeah, and I, I was a little bit muddled about like the motivation of the new, the sheriff guy and like why he was team i i don't know i think i got a little confused during some of that part like why mm -hmm. certain alliances were happening um but could have been no <laughs> i agree it got a little a little, a little twisted there um although we did get a chance at once everything was you know aflame essentially when johnny ringo came looking for revenge from the guys and we get that i'm your huckleberry line from val kilmer yes. when he steps in to take the take basically he would have taken the bullet for wyatt earp uh and man, I want it like the fact this film had the nerve to hold back on that moment for another 30 minutes, I'd say, to have the face off between Doc Holliday and, and Johnny Ringo is both uh, nice because it, it, it trusted itself to say, hey, you don't need this right now. At the same time, so incredibly frustrating because I just want to have delivery on that moment of, yes, step in for Wyatt and take the shot. Yeah, and with all that time that elapsed, by the time Doc Holliday came back and said, like, hey, we didn't finish our game, I had almost forgotten that it had happened, then, mm. and it hit a little bit harder because it had gone to the back of my brain, and I was like, oh, yeah, now we're back to this. Yep. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, Virgil's crippled, Morgan is dead. By the way, Morgan, when Morgan ran out of the house when there was the shooting at the house, remember the, sh the, the wives get shot at by the ambusher? Yeah, and then he went to go play pool. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> Oh, I said the same thing. I was like, I thought he so ran he off to find the cowboys. Out. Yeah, he storms out and then is just playing billiards. Like, all right. That made no sense. I mean, I watched the director's cut of the film and nothing explains anything between there. It's just he goes running out and then he's shot blame pool. <laughs> I don't, I didn't love that whole sequence. I didn't love the dramatic running out into the rain and covered mm. in pool. I was like, this is a little overblown for how much other stuff was played a little more subtly mm -hmm. um this is a lot but. yeah and that's where again maybe there is a, there was some different directing going on because tone definitely shifts back and forth between uh moments in this film because you have like you said a very unsubtle sequence where everybody's just gnashing their teeth and out in the rain and, and it's just insanity and then you have way more subtle moments where it, it feels like a different film altogether yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I, I really appreciate when there is that lightness of touch and like nuance. Um, mm -hmm. like that's when it really sings for me, I guess. Yeah. So basically, like at this point, it feels like, well, wait, is this over? Because Wyatt and Virgil go to get a train out of town. And we're like, wait, what, what's going on? Like, <laughs> it's over? Are they giving up? It's, it's, you know, Curly Bill's one. And Curly Bill sends two guys to ambush them at the station. I was like, oh, no, like, you know, the, because at this point, everything has gone bad. Everybody's dying or getting hurt. And 
I'm like, these, they're going to take him out. And like, it's like, <laughs> we're going to get like a, a very downbeat 70s style ending to this film. But no, it was a trap on the part of Wyatt Earp. And then we get an amazing moment because holy crap, when he attacks the guys who came to ambush him, this is like, again, this is like from a John Wick film. Like, like yeah. he, we cuts the one guy with his spur. Like, I was like, whoa, what is going on here? Like, this is Kurt Russell action star. Um, it's like, you know, um, he slashes him in the face and then he, he gives that line, which only, I, I don't know if anybody else could do this than Kurt Russell. <laughs> you call down the thunder. Well, now you got it. And I was like, holy <laughs> crap. Like, basically, you've just restarted the film. Like, now this last portion of the film is its own beast altogether. Yeah, you just gave it the cinematic equivalent of a five-hour energy drink. We are ready to go again. Like, it's all going. And then we call back. Way back, remember when we talked about the pale horse and death is coming? And he says, tell them I'm coming and hell is coming with me. I was like, yes. this Kevin Jerry does not get enough credit for being an excellent screenwriter because he tied everything together super neat. It was awesome. I was fist pumping a lot during this. Yes, let's do this. So, you know, um, like I, I was like, this is great. We, we're now restarted. We got all the energy. We now have the heroes on their revenge kick, which, you know, fine. I'm not a big death, you know, um, you know, like a, what's that movie with Bruce Willis, Death Wish kind of guy. Like I'm not mm. looking for a lot of vigilante, uh, you know, things. But man, um, they go on that murder spree to which by the way i was like what like how how are there this many people left to kill (laughs) they kill for probably like 20 minutes i think here because they're just riding around town shooting everybody and killing everybody yeah including (laughs) a savage killing where they go to the opium den and the guy goes to smoke the pipe and puts the gun in his mouth (laughs) i was like oh man (laughs) like this movie is not pulling any punches anymore (laughs) To the point where I have to wonder, was this normal for people who lived in these towns? Was it just like this? Oh, this is this week's random massacre. Like, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, it's such macho wish fulfillment that it feels out of step with what else is happening in this film. Like I said, there's a lot of progressive ideas in this film. And, you know, we have a lot of characters who don't seem like old school Western characters. But then we get like, hey, let's kill everybody. <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> and maybe again i i mean i'm repeating myself a bit here the directing issue may be re- rearing its head here where this is somebody else's story that we're not we don't know whose story it is yeah and i think there's also an element of i, I think sometimes people are are guided mistakenly so by what they think people want to see like mm. okay this is a western its audience is kind of you know men adult men and adult men like this even if they don't like the the idea is like this is what they want to see in a movie so we're going to make sure we have those few sequences to grab them and Mm -hmm. i think there's just more of a consideration of like is that actually appropriate for what the story you're telling and is that what actually people want to see i don't know and it's just in my opinion way over the top because there's just so much of it like it's just like it, it feels heavy with with murder and i mean i get it if you want to take out the key guys that caused this problem for you, go for it. That's just, that's classic filmmaking trope. You knock off the guys leading up to the big guy, the big boss, and you go down the list. 
they kill so indiscriminately in this moment. They're just shooting guys riding next to them on horseback. They're finding people, hanging them. They're, it's, it's nuts. It's, it's like eight movies in one of, of uh, revenge killings. Yeah. And it's a long movie. So there was room <laughs> for some of it to be Chopped gone. Off. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So then we, uh, we catch up with Josephine because she's riding out of town in the, co- in the coach. And Johnny Ringo stops her. And we find out that Mr. Fabian was shot and killed. And Billy is there for some reason. I mean, what is Billy's role? I think he works like with the posse, like with the, the I don't know, sheriff, marshal, whoever that guy is. Um, Cause then he leaves after that. He's like, nope, I'm not. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just never caught on to what he was supposed to be doing anywhere. He's like their mascot. He's just a, like cute little, <laughs> cute little puppy that follows them around. <laughs> yeah. He, he grabs Fabian's dead hand and then rides off in anger. And I was like, Oh, like, well, obviously we know what happened. You know, we now, now we're sure that it was, that was the storyline, but we don't see him again. I was think that I would think that maybe you know we would have brought him back for some some reason. I mean, it just felt like it's just very open ended and and unsatisfying to kill Fabian and just send Billy out of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I felt like that plot line was underdeveloped, and mm. I I thought purposefully so. Um, but I, I think if it was going to be sort of just this this you know kind of under the under the radar types you know plot line, it. it then why bring it up at this like pivotal climactic moment and then not resolve it? Like either play it, you know, gently and lightly and, you know, where you notice it a little bit, but it's not like a huge aspect or just, you know, resolve it. Yeah. I would have liked something, you know, he could have joined forces with, you know, Wyatt and his crew and, you know, it would have worked for me, even if he didn't, was it, if he was just looking for revenge, not so much against a single person. Yeah. Then I also think like, I don't see him as a revenge person. I don't see mm-hmm. him as like, I, I think running away is more what he, he just seemed like a very um, like said, sensitive, delicate. calm, yeah. like, you know, he was very, he was so touched by that Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. He's just a man of culture. And I don't think he would have wanted to fight. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> True. I would have liked a little coda at the end, at least, you know, they did do the, t- the, uh, the coda of what happened to several characters. I would have liked to know what happened to him. Do you know if he's real? If he's a real person? I don't know if he's real. I don't either. Um, but it would be interesting to find out. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so Wyatt, uh, his crew is trying to figure out what's next after killing so many people. And, um, but Doc takes a turn for the worst. And uh, so they have to find somewhere to hang out and, and take care of him. And they find that place with Henry Hooker, who is played by Charlton Heston, who is so wasted in this film. I mean, what was the point? What was he doing there? <laughs> Why? He did nothing in this film. I think he had two, three lines, maybe. My husband was like, is that Charlton Heston? <laughs> I was like, yep. <laughs> I couldn't believe how insignificant he is to this movie. Like, was he incapable of acting? Was he like, did he, I mean, I don't know what the point was of actually getting him out of bed to be in this film. The only thing I can think of is that in some iteration of this film, he had a bigger role hmm. and then some of it got cut. Yeah. Well, I mean, these were the scenes that were shot by the original director, Kevin Jerry, uh, and they used them as is, and they are pretty bland. 
Uh, I mean, nothing is happening in these scenes. And maybe that's Kevin Jarry's fault. Maybe he's not a good director or you know, was a good director. Um, he never directed anything else, I, I, as far as I'm aware. Um, maybe he just didn't know what he was doing and Carlton Heston wasn't giving him anything. That's very possible. It happens. Yeah. But boy, this was a, this whole moment of getting to this house is just such a piece of padding for this film that we did not need in any way. Oh, does not need any padding. Cut it. <laughs> Kill your darlings. Get them out of there. Exactly. <laughs> so Johnny Ringo now calls out Wyatt and Doc takes his place without him knowing. And boy, you know, wow. You know, I'm your Huckleberry one more time. And just like that face off between the two of them is, this is what you want out of this film. Because you know, once once we've established their friendship and once we've established Johnny is coming after Wyatt, you needed this moment to happen. And it is just perfectly played because he is so threatening, Val Kilmer, in this moment. Like, you know, I mean, there's no doubt at any point that Ringo is going to not die. He is dead at that moment. And it's just a moment of a matter of when is it going to happen? Because he is like a cobra that's coiled and ready to strike. And that you don't see that much from Val Kilmer as an actor. He is usually very cool, very calm. This was him going to ready to kill somebody. And he, it was everything about him. He was so set to take a life. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's not like an aggression. It's not like this overtly macho, like sense of I'm going to kill you. It's just determination. mm. Yeah, determined and like aware and alert, and I, it's it's so good. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have a lot. I don't have words. Yeah. <laughs> I've lost it, them all. It's such a perfect performance. And then we get another montage of murders. Yeah, my question is, you know, as I'm watching this, I'm watching more shootings, more shootings, more shootings. Where are all the bullets? How are they, who's carrying all these bullets? <laughs> yes, because there was a scene earlier in the film where. Doc is shooting at somebody and he's doing like a rapid fire, like where he's, you know, he's just Mm -hmm. shooting him off. And I'm like, that is a lot of bullets for a six shooter, (laughs) sir. Like, I don't think you have that many in that gun and you're not stopping to reload. No, and I don't think any of them were wearing like bandoleros or anything like that. So where are all these bullets coming from that they're shooting people with? They don't see any, there's no like, nobody's carrying like a box with them or anything like that. It's insane. It doesn't make, there's a lot of logic issues with the shootings in this movie. (laughs) Just beyond the fact they shouldn't be happening, just how they happen is a big problem. So you, you were watching the director's cut of this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't remember that many murders. And I I don't, I don't know if this all blurred together for me at a certain point, or if the director's cut has more murders. I think it does because, (laughs) you know, after the Ringo kill, after he kills Ringo, there's another one of those riding on horseback, murdering people sequences. I don't remember that, but I also could have blocked it out. So I, the jury's out. And if you told me that it was just the previous sequence cut back into the film again, I'd believe it because there's nothing else different about it. It's just the same idea of just, let's kill everybody. Let's kill everybody. We're mad. Yeah. (laughs) You killed Bill Paxton. You have to die. (laughs) And then suddenly we're at a sanitarium in Colorado. This was like the (laughs) oddest cut I've, I've, I've experienced because it comes out of nowhere. We jump right into Doc dying in this in this bed. I liked it. I mean, I liked I liked him being like, I don't want to play anymore. Like, I don't mm. want to play. And I'm just like, oh, buddy. Yeah. It's super touching. 
Yeah, but it is a weird cut. It comes out of nowhere. And I'm like, <laughs> how did we get to Colorado? Where? He, he rode his horse over the mountains and saw the sunrise. <laughs> I don't know. There's some question. I mean, you have a movie this long. You could take some moments to like, give me some connective tissue to show me how you got there. Yeah. Because you didn't do that at all. So Doc's being read his last rites. Like you said, I don't want to play anymore. Doc talks about his first love, who was his first cousin. His 15-year-old first cousin. <laughs> true, and, very and true. And Kurt Russell's like, that's wonderful. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no. Nothing about that is wonderful. So you've got gun control, you've got equal rights, and you've got marrying your 15-year-old cousin. Uh, maybe things aren't so great. <laughs> Oy. I get it. I mean, look, both of my great-grandmothers on my mom's side were 13 when they got married. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand it was a different time, but yikes yeah not your cousin <laughs> are you rude giuliani come on <laughs> so wyatt goes to see josephine uh as doc told him to you know because doc is still helping him out and he swears his love for her and they dance in the snow and it's a nice touching ending even though you know you have to think about the fact that he left his drug addicted wife to go marry this actress you know <sighs> <laughs> It's not just focus on the snow and like the the, the cute dancing and it's and then like on the the bottom of the screen there's just the text that says like Maddie died a year later. Oh yeah, I mean no. I really I felt for her. I mean even though she wasn't much of a character, I, nobody was dealt a tougher hand than her really. She, no. You know, following Wyatt around. You know, it's not her movie and she's not written well, but that's mm -hmm. not her fault. That's not no. Maddie's fault. That's not the actress's fault. No. That's just you know. And is. then we get the end credits where Wyatt, the Wyatt brothers and or brothers and Doc are walking down the street. How many times did they shoot this and how long were they walking down the street? Because this goes on for a good five minutes. I would love to have been on the scene on the set when they shot this because they they go from close ups to far shots to mid shots. They get everything. They must have shot all day walking down that street. Yeah, they just went for a walk. I can picture like Kurt Russell being like, did we get it? Or <laughs> Did we get it? And I was like, no, just keep walking. It's fine. Maybe that's, maybe that's when he was directing. He was like, I'm done with this. We're done. I'm done. Yeah, like cut, print. <laughs> Got it. Is there anything about Tombstone that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? Oh, my God. I think we, I think we hit everything. I would hope um, so. <laughs> yeah, we talked about a lot. I mean, I think that's everything. That's all I got. Well, now that we've had our say, let's hear from the man himself. It's time for a reading from the Book of Val. Our reading today comes from Val Kilmer's memoir, I'm Your Huckleberry. Uh, considering the book is named after a line in the film, it should be obvious that Tombstone has a chapter in it. Um, so I will read. In trying to understand the character of Doc Holliday, it's important to remember he's a fallen aristocrat, frustrated by his inability to express his authentic self. His greatest retribution for this loss was his caustic wit. His tongue is more lethal than his pistol. Throughout the drama, he's dying of both drink and tuberculosis. In playing him, I thought of what my dear friend, the great screenwriter Robert Town had taught me. All insightful dialogue comes out of situations, not pre-developed thought. In that regard, I saw Doc's situation as dire. I also saw his action as defiance in the face of death. I loved him. Thanks be to Val. It, it really is a motivated performance. Like you said, he knew what what Doc Holliday wanted and he gave it to him. And that's, that's really where, you know, Kilmer's dedication to his craft shines is that he made 
Doc Holliday a true character. And I don't know, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of other stories of the Earp and Holiday. I've seen a few of them. I don't know if anybody stood out as well as Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. No, I mean, I, I've seen My Darling Clementine. Um, and for me, I most remember um, Henry Fonda in that movie as, as Wyatt Earp. So um, I think Val Kilmer definitely wins that you know, battle. And I think it's just, there's no substitute for when you really have a, a, a genuine emotional connection and you understand the character. Um, mm. It just, it, like, it all kind of comes together. Absolutely. So we've had our say. Val's had his say. Let's hear what others have to say. Come, children. Let's explore the kills and valleys. Kills and valleys are the best and worst reviews of this film. Uh, Tombstone has done well on Rotten Tomatoes. It earned a 74% fresh rating. Um, Emmanuel Levy of uh, Variety wrote, resisting the temptation of creating a reverential tribute to John Ford, whose version of the story was the classic, My Darling Clementine, director Cosmatos instead opts for a more operatic, gritty style of Sergio Leone, particularly in his cutting and use of mega close-ups during their legendary close, uh, gunfight at the OK Corral. After a weak initial half hour, Cosmatos judiciously finds the most audience appealing dimensions of his tale. Yeah, I, I get that. You know, the first half hour is really about mood setting. Um, and then, but I think you definitely could have cut some of the last half hour for sure. I don't think, I think it overstayed its welcome a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Mark Caro of Chicago Tribune said, this somewhat overlong, yes, <laughs> tombstone <laughs> uh, ultimately can't reconcile these conflicting impulses either, but at least it consist consistently entertains as it tries. And that, I agree. There's never, I don't think there's a point where I got bored of this film. So I have to say, I was surprised at how many negative reviews there were amongst the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes. There are so many negative reviews there. Um, it was hard to pick out just a few, but here's a couple. Uh, Rene Rodriguez of the Miami Herald. For the most part, Tombstone is inept. Some of the performances are wincingly bad. Director George P. Cosmatos firmly cements his hack status. He takes nearly an hour to get things rolling, then fails to build to any sort of momentum. That's harsh. Yeah, I mean, That's I thought the performances bad. are great. <laughs> I, I have mean, no problem with any of them, really. Who could even come close to being said to be wincingly bad? I can't even think of anybody. No, I mean, the only people I can think of are people whose characters are underdeveloped, and it's not the acting that's bad. It's just sort of they don't really have much of a character. But what are the movies that she is watching? The yeah. you know top-tier movies where this is bad performances. <laughs> yeah, she's got her bar is very high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryan Orndorff was similarly uninterested. Tombstone is clumsy and clearly patched together in haste, with characters strolling in and out of the picture with more on their mind than the final product allows them to communicate. As for the celebrated term by Val Kilmer as quippy killer Doc Holliday, it is a scenery-chewing, tongue-twirling performance that's as superficial as the rest of the picture, but at least Kilmer appears to be having fun. It's more than I can say for the rest of the listless cast. Dare you, sir. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, obviously I got to defend it, but, you know, it's like, come on, like, listless cast. What? Scenery chewing? No. <laughs> no. I mean... If anything, he underplayed that character a lot of the time. He could yeah, have been way bigger. It wasn't a big performance. It was, no. it was, uh, no. I it was styled. You know, yeah. yes. I want to challenge this man to a duel. <laughs> Let's take a look at how the film fared with the unwashed masses on Amazon. So there are remarkable 22,673 reviews of there when I checked last. You want to guess how many were five star? Mm, 
2000. I don't do math, but 90% of them. Oh, okay. 90% of 22,000 reviews are five star. I mean, I like this film a lot. That's insane. (laughs) How do you have that many five star reviews? (laughs) The acting by Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer is not just good, it's great. And the rest of the cast is top notch. It's absolutely amazing that Val Kilmer didn't even get nominated for an Academy Award for this performance. That I agree with wholly. This is a great performance. Yeah, I, I want to know who he was, who, like, who were the people who won that year. Mm, in 1993. That'd be interesting yeah, to see. So, he would have been for supporting, probably. Yeah, I would say so. Um, so Tommy Lee Jones won for The Fugitive. Then Leonardo DiCaprio was nominated for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Mm-hmm. Ray Fiennes was nominated for Schindler's List. John Malkovich was nominated for In the Line of Fire. And Pete Postlethwaite was nominated for In the Name of the Father. Solid lineup. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to argue. I mean, I guess yeah. I would maybe kick John Malkovich out, but oh, I don't know. We'd have to have words close. about that. It's I mean, it's not like one deserves it more than you know. It's okay. I get it. I'm I get less, why he's left out. I'm less concerned now, but I still think he could have slid in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice, but I'll allow it. The the cast led by Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer is uniformly excellent, as is the script and the lavish production. Oh, but speaking of the production, something I didn't mention. Uh, do you know who the production designer was on this film? I do not. Catherine Hardwick, who directed Twilight. Oh, nice. Yeah, she uh, she went from production design to to directing, and she's on the DVD talking about all the work that went into it, and it's a lot of work that went into this film. I can imagine, because you basically have to build that town. Yeah, they did. They built it from scratch, essentially. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, the movie barely puts a foot wrong, taking plenty of time to tell the story, but never outstaying its welcome. Eh, maybe a little bit at the end. <laughs> could've, could've. It, it overstayed its welcome with me, but yeah. I still found it very entertaining. So, Val yep. uh, Kilmer delivers his finest acting in Tombstone as the hilarious, quick-witted Doc Holliday. Kilmer gives a cool edge to Holliday that is unforgettable. His smooth delivery and frail visage is an intriguing pairing. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Now, just 1% of the reviews were one star, and the vast majority of them were complaints about the quality of the DVD that was received. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I Which, was going to say, because those reviews are always like kind of split between people complaining about the product and people <laughs> complaining about the movie. Yep. Uh, I've tried three times to watch this ridiculous movie. Each time I reach the same conclusion about 15 minutes in, it's a pathetic joke. A handful of milk toast Hollywood pretty boys trying to look like tough guys. Kurt Russell is okay. not a pretty boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's a man. He's a pretty man, okay? <laughs> he is a tough guy. I, I would never fight Kurt Russell. <laughs> no. No, the only pretty boy I can think of in the movie is Jason Priestley, and he's barely in it. Everyone well, else Bill, is like... Billy Zane is a pretty, pretty boy. <laughs> sure, okay, okay. Billy Zane, too. But both of them are barely in it, so... True. And he definitely didn't get 15 minutes in and see them. <laughs> no, certainly not. This one I have... This is something in this one, next one that I have a real problem with. Val Kilmer played an excellent role, as did Michael Ben Bean. Um, okay, again, like I said, why are people referencing Michael Bean? What? Like, I don't get He's it. He's the like, star. <laughs> Wyatt's love interest played her part perfectly. Uh, I guess he's talking about Dan Delaney, not uh, the Laudiomatic. Uh, she was beautiful and alluring. The rest, I just thought they showed up. Story is dull. Too many A-list actors. How do you... Too many A-list actors. That's a problem? Ah, uh, yes. A famous problem of having too many stars in your movie. I've watched it four times and it's missing something. How do you watch something four times? 
Yeah, you clearly got something out of it if you're still watching it. I wouldn't, if I watched the movie and I was like, this is, you know, not good, I would never watch it more than once. It's impossible. Four times is insane. There are a lot of movies that I love that I haven't seen more than once. Like, come on. So we have a decision to make. With or without Val. Does Val Kilmer make or break this film? He makes it, 100%. See, I think for me, this movie is not the experience it is without Val Kilmer. I mean, I think that's very clear. It's an incredible performance. I mean, but without him, I think this is still a pretty good film. I mean, it's got a lot of great stuff going on without him in it. That said, I mean, if you take him out, the core of the friendship obviously is gone, which is a big problem for Wyatt Earp, who is Wyatt Earp without his friend, really. Uh, It also kills that ending of the film because you take out that Doc Holliday scene at the sanitarium and it's like, well, who cares about this movie? What what was the point of it at this point? You know, you had to have that friendship there. I think it's, um, it would be a perfectly fine film without Val Kilmer in it, but he makes it so much more entertaining and there's a reason why there's 90% five-star reviews and I think Val Kilmer is a big part of that yeah I mean I I think also if you have not Val Kilmer in that role you run the risk of having somebody who is going to kind of make it into like a jokey character and isn't going to do it as well and that kills the movie I think without him it's sort of just a a kind of a mid-tier prestige westerny drama I'm trying to think who who could play who would have played Doc Holliday if not for Val Kilmer. Hmm. Like imagine if it was Jim Carrey or something like that. Oh boy. <laughs> I think that's where your your point would get to is that it would be way over the top. It's trying to get those one-liners out. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows what could have happened? So now that we've covered Tombstone, I'd like to play a little game. So okay. it's called it's simply called Val or Doc. And so I'm going to give you a fact, and you tell me if it relates to Doc Holliday or to the man who played him, Val Kilmer. Okay. Now, I know you are not the uh, most up on Val Kilmer. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but so, you know, you'll just have to use what you know of Val Kilmer and try to figure out, is this Val Kilmer or is it Doc Holliday? Okay. So first up, his early career path was as a dentist. Doc, Doc Holliday. That is correct. It was Doc Holliday. He actually went to dental school and uh, was a dentist early on and then gave it up. Um, moved back to Georgia after uh, problem was people didn't want to go to a dentist who had tuberculosis. <laughs> I get it. Ask for like, I, I get it. Um, I think in my darling Clementine, he pulls someone's tooth <laughs> or something like that. So I'm like, oh, I, I remembered that about him. <laughs> Number two, born in Georgia. Is that, is that doc? Did it we talk about Holiday. Georgia? Okay, I yes. thought I just heard it, but then I was like, wait, is that a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> Doc Holliday was born in Valdosta, Georgia. His middle name is Edward. Is that Val? Val Edward Kilmer is correct. You are okay. firing on all I'm cylinders fired. here. Okay, next up had a strained relationship with his father after his mother's death. Like it could be both? Is it a trick question? Um, <laughs> no, none of them I'll, are both. I, I didn't pull that. <laughs> I'll, I'll say Val. That was Doc Holliday. Okay. So um, his father actually married a, the daughter of his neighbor after his mother died. And uh, she was only eight years older than him. 
which was a real problem between them. I mean, he wanted to marry his 15-year-old cousin, so... Yeah, true. Glass houses, bro. (laughs) His grandfather was a gold miner. Val. Correct. Val Kilmer's grandfather was a gold miner. Considered running for governor of New Mexico. Doc? I don't know. That would be Val Kilmer. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually interesting that their paths cross a lot. They spent a lot of time in the same areas, New Mexico and, uh, and California and down south. Okay, next one. His ex-wife's nickname was Big Nose. Mm. Doc? Correct. Big Nose <laughs> Kate Horony. <laughs> who in the movie was the uh, Kate that uh, was his accomplice. Oh, I don't know. Poor I Kate. mean, yeah. Big nose. Kate was what she was known as. She was a prostitute and uh, they were married for Well, common law married for about 10 years, I believe. Mm. Um, I don't know if Joanne Wally, who is uh, Kilmer's ex-wife has a nickname. <laughs> I hope it's not big nose. Cause that's mean. Let's hope have... not. <laughs> okay. Next one ran into trouble in New Mexico for saying 80% of the people around the town were drunks. Val Kilmer? Correct, Val Kilmer. Yeah, he, uh, he was looking to uh, get some land approved, and unfortunately they found quotes of him talking about how you know, the people of the town were all drunks. So that that was is a bit also of a problem. why he didn't run for governor. <laughs> <laughs> Probably didn't help. Lent his name to a Danish heavy metal song. I mean, Val, maybe? Doc Holliday. Ah. This, it was by the band Volbeat. It is a little bit of a trick question because... Because Val, he didn't give it to them. They took well, it. Yeah. He's been dead for a long time. Val Kilmer has a song named after him as well by the band Bowling for Soup. Oh, uh, yeah. He does, uh, doesn't he? <laughs> so it's a little bit of a trick question because there are songs of both Doc Holliday and Val Kilmer. And the last question... He split with his friend over an argument about his friend's wife. Doc Holliday. Correct. He ended up not being friends with Wyatt Earp because he, uh, well, he he claimed that uh, Wyatt Earp was being turned into a Jew by his wife. (laughs) Yeah, real great, right? Incredible. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe Doc Holliday, not a hero. (laughs) No, he's he's the (laughs) anti-hero. Well, that's all for this episode of KilmerCast. I'd like, like to thank you for taking the time to chat about this film, uh, which I think is a blast, and uh, Val Kilmer's maybe per- best performance. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. I loved I loved Tombstone. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Um, do I have anything? I mean, check my stuff out on Crooked Marquee. I have um, things coming up there. Um, Jump Cut Online, lots of fun things happening all the time over there. Um, and I, I co-host a podcast, Jump Cut, um, and I'm currently doing like a movie history podcast where I'm doing a different decade of film each nice. episode to kind of just wrap up for people who don't really know a lot about older films. So well, that's cool. What's that called? Um, it's just like Jump Cut, and then I do a, a series that's okay. just like my film history part of it because when quarantine happened, there were no movies coming out. So I was like, <laughs> well, we'll look back at old ones then. Absolutely. That's why the show exists. <laughs> <laughs> And then unfortunately, halfway through, he decided to make a new film. So I had to throw that one in there as a bonus episode. <laughs> nice. 
So in our next episode, we'll be jumping ahead to 2010 and checking out Val as the son of country music singer Chris Christopherson in the film Bloodworth. In the meanwhile, please email any thoughts, questions, or comments to KilmerCast at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter at KilmerCast. For myself and my guest, Audrey Fox, thanks for listening and remember to keep it Kilmer. Hey!